Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View, episode 457. We are revisiting a topic that we have discussed previously way long, long time ago. So many episodes episodes ago. 238, um, where we talked about what is a FODMAP and why some people would avoid eating them. And I'm excited that, Sarah, you are revisiting and updating science. This is kind of a, a theme of what we've got going on these days is looking at updated science and talking about, you know, what we knew then, what we know now, and what we can um, learn from that in order to live our best, healthiest lives. So I'm excited. Yeah, I really, there's something very satisfying to me about watching the evidence accumulate to the point where like a revisit is really important because the conclusions are a little bit different now than what we concluded was that like four years ago when we first covered this topic in depth and we can look at the science from the last couple of years and go, Oh, like this really does change our understanding of what FODMAP intolerance is and the long-term consequences of a low FODMAP diet. Not that we were ever, um, Not that we ever endorsed long-term low FODMAP diets for most people, but the science has come in to really show that there there could be some problems with with following a low FODMAP diet long-term. So we're going to kind of break it all down and really look at at FODMAP intolerance through this new lens of the gut microbiome so that we can really understand what, what alternatives we have to following a low FODMAP diet for symptom management. And I'm super excited because this episode is sponsored by our favorite probiotic company, Just Thrive. Agreed. I will point out that it has been a hot minute, but that I have continued to use Just Thrive every day mm-hmm. since the last time they were our sponsor. Um, we personally invite only those brands that we use and love and recommend. And you know, because I've mentioned it a bajillion times before, that Just Thrive is my favorite probiotic. I've seen a difference in a multitude of ways, not the least of which it's also one of the things that I recommend to people who have skin issues all the time. So Mm -hmm. um, one of those things is because the skin and gut are linked so closely. And um, the dirt-based, the soil-based probiotic doesn't need to be refrigerated and um, really inhibits the growth of the negative, the, you know, pathogenic bacteria, the fungi, the parasites, all the negative stuff that might be happening in your gut and helps to create a more balanced, happy ecosystem with your little friends down there. So um, if you have not had success with a probiotic and you're kind of negative on them like I was years ago, I would definitely give Just Thrive a try. And we're going to talk about the importance of this 
relative to FODMAP and gut health and all that kind of stuff as we get into the show, you'll understand. But if you want to check out Just Thrive, you can always go to justthrivehealth.com slash the whole view and you'll get 15% off with code the whole view at checkout. So let's quickly review what FODMAPs are um, so that we can sort of jump in. The the term FODMAP is actually an acronym, and it stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, monosaccharides, disaccharides, and polyols. What these are is they're relatively short chain, short and sort of medium chain carbohydrates, and they tend to be rich in fructose, except for polyols, which are sugar alcohols. Um, and what these all have in common is that they're not always super efficiently absorbed in the small intestine. Um, but by the time they reach our large intestine, they are highly fermentable. So our gut bacteria absolutely love them. And one of the things that I think is really going to be thematic as we sort of dig into this topic in more detail is understanding that FODMAPs are prebiotics, right? They're basically a fermentable substrate their food for our gut bacteria. And they include some of the most important prebiotics for uh, growing some of the most important probiotic bacteria species. So for example, they include fructo-oligosaccharides, right? Fructose, medium chain carbohydrate, but also galacto-oligosaccharides. These fructo-oligosaccharides and galacto-oligosaccharides together are some of the most important um, prebiotics, right? Food for bifidobacterium, lactobacillus. Um, also, right, polyols tend to be highly fermentable. There's also uh, xylose-based medium sort of chain carbohydrates in, um, included within this um category. And these are some of the preferred food sources for some of the best bacteria, not just bifidobacteria and lactobacillus, but also Acromantia municifila, fecalibacteria, and Pratsnitsi, which is one of the one of the. It's really like a keystone species; like it's super important. Um, Rosberia. These are uh, species of bacteria that have really diverse health benefits. So we see that they're really good for regulating the immune system. They're really good for regulating the integrity of the gut barrier. They're um, really excellent vitamin producers. Um, and they're basically, you know, when we sort of look at the human gut microbiome, there's some, obviously there's some individual variability from person to person. Probably an ideal gut microbiome is as unique for us as our fingerprints. But there's also these like broad strokes that we can say applies to everyone. So the balance between gram positive and gram negative bacteria is one of those like big things that's really important for a healthy gut microbiome. Diversity is really important. And then the presence of these types of probiotics is another like hallmark of a healthy gut. So it's really important to understand that FODMAPs are prebiotics that support the growth of some of the most important probiotic bacteria in a healthy gut. And when we have a healthy gut microbiome, 
there's this thing called cross-feeding. And this basically means that some bacteria's favorite food is other bacteria's poop. Um, and what they basically metabolize is the metabolic byproducts of other bacteria. And this is really important because this helps right? Uh, our bacteria like cooperatively make most of the B vitamins. There's not very many bacteria that have all of the enzymes to make something really complex like vitamin B12. But if you put a few bacteria together, then collectively they make vitamin B12 right in our guts. Um, our gut bacteria can make carotenoids. They can make um, they can help metabolize polyphenols from our food so that they're more easily absorbed. We only absorb about 5% of the polyphenols we consume without any kind of processing by our gut bacteria. So this, this cross-feeding is, is another important hallmark of a, of a healthy gut microbiome. And we have bacteria that can help. They'll metabolize um, short-chain fatty acids made by, or organic acids made by another bacteria. We have bacteria that'll even help metabolize gases that are produced. So when you have this healthy cross-feeding for most of us, when we have this healthy gut microbiome, we have a healthy gut, we're not going to notice any kind of gastrointestinal discomfort from these highly fermentable prebiotics called FODMAPs unless we eat a ton all at once. Um, FODMAPs are very rich in legumes. And Stacy, you have three boys. I'm sure you've heard the limerick. Yes. Well, we try to avoid beans in general. So fortunately, <laughs> we don't have to talk about the limerick. But um, fun fact, we always blame it on the dog. Um, <laughs> uh, when, we, not, when, we looked at, like, when we looked at um, our dog's breed, one of the first things that you'll read is that um, it often farts. And actually, she's on a very clean diet, so she rarely does. But um, according to the family, she's always farting because we blame it on any <laughs> any breaking of wind so, on the dog. So so FODMAPs, because they're highly, highly fermentable, they do um, the metabolic byproducts of FODMAP fermentation tends to include a lot of hydrogen, uh, carbon dioxide, even some methane gas, um, as well as short-chain fatty acids. Uh, even for those of us with a healthy, really healthy gut microbiome, if we consume a lot of FODMAPs all at once, a natural byproduct is some uh, additional flatus frequency. Um, and that would be perfectly normal. What, what tips the scale into FODMAP intolerance is where um, the symptoms become uncomfortable, right? So it starts to become not just uh, not just uh, gas, but like uncomfortable gas, bloating, um, abdominal cramps, indigestion, belching, um, and changes in stool frequent uh, stool consistency that would categorize as either diarrhea or constipation. If those types of of symptoms are occurring when you consume FODMAPs, that's where we would start to call that FODMAP intolerance. And actually, the most typical diagnosis would be irritable bowel syndrome. Um, there's some researchers that believe that 100% of irritable bowel syndrome is caused by FODMAP intolerance. And we're going to kind of get into why that's probably not the case. Um, but that that's where you go from like a natural... Yep, there's there's things that happen when our large intestinal bacteria are super metabolically active versus um, 
there's some there's some kind of imbalance happening here or some type of um, lack of pre-digestion of these FODMAPs before they hit the, lar the large intestine, uh, where they should be at least partially digested in our small intestine, that is creating a situation where the metabolic activity of our gut bacteria is leading to gastrointestinal symptoms. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think what's interesting to me and what I have a hard time kind of dissecting overall is because symptoms can often look the same or maybe they're linked in some sort of way. Um, what does that mean in terms of um, how how one might identify the differences or, um, for example, the IBS and other factors that might look like, you know, FODMAP sensitivity I think, you know, what we come to understand of what that's telling us about our bodies, like, do you, do you understand? I feel like I'm all over yeah. this with my question, but I think no, no. I, for me, I just have a hard time kind of like understanding the differences between the different ways that the gut has problems and is telling you it has problems. For sure. And I think one of the challenges with IBS is that it's sort of a diagnosis of exclusion, right? So it's it's the the thing you get labeled with when you have gastrointestinal symptoms with no obvious cause, right? It's not ulcerative colitis, it's not celiac disease, it's not diverticulitis. So we just say, look, your bowel, your bowel's irritable. And I'm like, yeah, I knew that. That's why I came to you, doctor, um, as somebody who has, uh, or at least, you know, pre, uh, you know, diet changes and AIP, had a very, very long history of IBS um, and, and a lot of frustration with it, right? It just basically meant that um, my gastrointestinal symptoms were sort of pervasive. They um, interfered with my quality of life um, and they were also unpredictable. So um, that, for me, I kind of swung from one, one extreme to the other. So what's interesting about thinking about IBS in terms of FODMAP intolerance is when you think about what lo a low FODMAP diet looks like for somebody following a standard American diet. So if you take somebody who's following a standard American diet and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, uh, you have IBS, follow a low FODMAP diet, the biggest source of FODMAPs in the standard American diet is wheat. Um, the next biggest source is dairy products. And so if you go low FODMAP and your symptoms resolve, you may blame FODMAPs as a class of prebiotic fibers, whereas really what's going on is food sensitivity. And we can kind of dissect some of that science. Um, there's actually studies looking at genes related to gluten sensitivity that show that like up to 55% of the population in North America has 
at least one of these gluten sensitivity genes. Um, we've talked about this before on episode 293, and we also I also have a detailed article on my website that I can point to if you're interested in doing genetic testing for gluten sensitivity genes. But symptoms of non-celiac gluten sensitivity basically like 100% overlap with IBS symptoms, bloating, gas, cramps, diarrhea, and or constipation, indigestion, belching. Um, some people with non-celiac gluten sensitivity will also have more systemic symptoms like brain fog, fatigue, rashes, headaches, joint or muscle pain, sometimes um, peripheral neuropathy-like symptoms, depression, anxiety. Um, but what was really interesting was there was a, a 2012 study um, done in symptoms with IBS where they did a, a it was a double-blind gluten elimination and challenge study. So it was a really rigorously done study. And they basically showed that 30% of the IBS um, uh, patients that were in the study had wheat sensitivity. So when they eliminated wheat, their symptoms went away. And when they challenged wheat, their symptoms came back. So you can imagine that if these were people who um, had IBS and decided to follow a low FODMAP diet, they may they may blame all FODMAPs when really it's it's gluten, it's wheat that is the the culprit. And we'll get into why that's that's problematic. Um, but it the the quick answer right now is it means they're eliminating a lot of health promoting foods unnecessarily. And the same is true for dairy intolerance. So lactose is a is a FODMAP. Um, lactose intolerance is generally caused by deficiency in the enzyme lactase. And the the frequency of lactose intolerance sort of varies by ethnicity. It ranges from about 5% among Northern Europeans up to about 90% um, in some Asian and African countries. But in the U.S. alone, there's somewhere between 30 and 50 million people who are lactose intolerant. And if you're eliminating dairy, uh, as part of a low FODMAP diet and discover your symptoms go away, again, you may be eliminating a lot more foods than necessary. And that's just lactose as a FODMAP, right? Dairy intolerance or allergy can also look very much like IBS, sort of similar, right? Intoler food intolerance. So allergy will look a lot uh, can look a lot different. It can include gastrointestinal symptoms, but also things like a runny nose, hives, uh, facial swelling. Intolerance can can just have gastrointestinal symptoms. And there was a, a study done in uh, people with irritable bowel syndrome where they looked at IgA and IgG antibodies to different foods. They showed that 84% of the study participants, people with IBS, had IgG antibodies against milk proteins. So the frequency of dairy intolerance in people with IBS is overrepresented. It's very, very high. And even the same is, is true with soy. Soy is also a high FODMAP food. Um, studies looking at the rate of food intolerance against soy show that it's about 23% in people with IBS. Um, and IBS in general, there's been a, quite a few studies where they've taken people with IBS and they've done food sensitivity panels, and then they've either 
right? There's two groups, the group that eliminates all of the foods that came up on their food sensitivity panels and the group that eliminates uh, a different set of foods. So, so they, they don't know if they're eliminating the right foods or not. And they basically show, these studies show that up to 65% of people with IBS have their symptoms resolved if they eliminate all of the positives on a food sensitivity panel. So a large portion of IBS could be blamed on FODMAPs, but actually be really common food sensitivities. Interesting. I think one of the questions that I have, and you know, perhaps I'm jumping way ahead, is I think of people who use the FODMAP, whether we're going to call it a diet or approach or whatever it is, right? It's an elimination process mm-hmm. um, to tweak after they've eliminated um, gluten, soy, and dairy, for example. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, it's interesting to me to see all these numbers, but also to know from my own community and the bubble that I'm in that most of the people who are working on reducing FODMAPs for, you know, where yeah. we talked about it in the last show, for example, a short amount of time to um, tweak and eliminate what might still be affecting them have already removed most of these uh, major contributing For sure. factors. So these are the, say, 35-ish percent of people who um, their problem, you know, the thing that's causing the gastrointestinal symptoms when they consume FODMAPs is not an overt uh, food sensitivity. And so for these people, there is... Uh, gut dysbiosis is the most likely cause, but there is something called fructose malabsorption. And this is basically, right, so all of these FODMAPs tend to be fructose-based molecules. And uh, fructose, when it's digested, when we consume, right, uh, carbohydrates, our um, digestive enzymes break them up into individual sugar molecules called monosaccharides. And then those are transported across the gut barrier by our gut epithelial cells using carrier molecules. And the carrier molecule for fructose is called GLUT5. And there are certain uh, health conditions. Celiac disease is, is probably like the most... Uh, classic where you have enough damage to the small intestine, right? So in celiac disease, you you actually have this like atrophy of the intestinal villi. Um, and so you have a lower surface area for absorption of food. That's why malnutrition is kind of like a hallmark of celiac disease. It's because of this damage to the small intestine. And so in conditions like that, where you have a reduction of these GLUT5 transporters, uh, fructose can't, basically can't be absorbed as efficiently. And so more of it hits the large intestines when you consume it, where it's then fermented by gut bacteria. There's also some, some conditions that can slow down down how efficient GLUT5 transporters are. Um, So that includes uh, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, gut inflammation. So you can have these situations where um, basically because the GLUT5 transporter is not quite as efficient, it takes a lower amount of FODMAPs 
to tip somebody over into, say, increased flatus frequency, um, noticing some kind of symptoms. Um, but it's not to say that somebody with diabetes automatically has fructose malabsorption. Fructose uptake by the GLUT5 uh, transporter is also influenced by diet. So when we consume fructose at the same time as glucose, for example, if we were consuming whole fruit, um, that actually improves the efficiency of the transporter. Uh, but if we were consuming fructose, say, in the presence of something like sorbitol, as in um, ice cream marketed for diabetics that's sweetened with sorbitol and agave, um, that actually decreases the efficiency of the GLUT5 transporter. So again, um, what fructose malabsorption does or inefficient fructose absorption does is it changes the the dose of FODMAPs that would tip somebody over into some kind of gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, but this is almost considered a separate a separate diagnosis. So um, certainly like the the symptom overlap again is like a hundred percent. But it's there's basically researchers who are are really calling for fructose malabsorption to be its own diagnosis and not be categorized as irritable bowel syndrome because it has this really distinct mechanism. So there's more thought that fructose malabsorption is like misdiagnosed as IBS rather than is under the IBS umbrella, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. And I wonder how many doctors are digging into that science. I think one of the things that we've talked before about on the show is how very far behind um, this information, how long it takes to get into the yep. literature for medical professionals and what that means in terms of what you might find in looking at, you know, recent studies and um, what your medical professional might have as a knowledge set. So I think it's just kind of a good reminder for us at this point to say, A, we're not medical professionals and, you know, cannot diagnose or give recommendations. And B, we have done a podcast before, we'll put a link in the show notes for you on what the difference is between different medical professionals that you can see to troubleshoot some of these things. And we did go into detail on for example, a functional medical practitioner who um, might have the ability to pull apart some of these things for you if you're, you know, still struggling with diagnosis or trying to um, do tweaks under the guidance of a medical professional. So just a little, little oops, should have said that at the beginning, but we don't say <laughs> should. So here you are, your little reminder. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so the the most likely culprit behind IBS is gut dysbiosis. And as I sort of mentioned at the top of the show, um, it's because of this thing called crossfeeding. When we have a healthy and diverse gut microbiome, you have this cooperation between species. And that's really important when we consume something like fructans, which is a type of FODMAP, um, right? That will dramatically increase the rate of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. And then they actually produce byproducts that other bacteria like rosburia and fecalibacterium will like to, to ferment. And so you end up 
in a situation where the fructans help the bifidobacteria grow, which help the fecalibacteria grow, and then you are supporting this whole community. But if you're missing the species um, like bifidobacterium to help digest the fructans, then you kind of have this situation where you can have this imbalance where there's like an overproduction in certain organic acids or gases, you're missing the bacteria that help to process that. And that's where then those things are in our digestive tract where they can um, change stool frequency, they can um, right increase gas production right in the large intestine, and that can um, lead to, lead to uh, the symptoms that we associate with IBS. And there's certainly a lot of studies that have shown that gut, gut dysbiosis is the most likely culprit in IBS. Um, enough studies for systematic reviews and meta-analyses, which everyone uh, who regularly listens to the show knows are my favorite kind of scientific study, and basically showing that uh, compared to healthy people, people with IBS tend to have little to no lactobacillus, little to no bifidobacterium, right? The, the species that love to eat fructans, um, to eat FODMAPs, basically. And then they also have things like higher E. coli. Um, e. coli have, um, there are this gram-negative bacteria, right, that have this very inflammatory protein called lipopolysaccharide in their cell membranes. Um, and when we have lipopolysaccharide get into our blood, um, that causes something called endotoxemia, which is highly inflammatory and linked to all kinds of chronic illnesses. Um, and so there's even been studies that have looked at uh, dysbiosis in general and basically shown that it's overrepresented in people with IBS. So something like 73%, at least the study that was done in 2015 showed 73% of the IBS patients um, in their study had uh, gut dysbiosis compared to 16% of the, the healthy controls that were in this study. And so basically what we're saying is that um, gut dysbiosis is probably capturing all of the people who uh, their symptoms are not purely driven by food intolerance. And actually there's probably some overlap, right? So it's probably some people who have food intolerance and gut dysbiosis, right? So they're actually they're actually sort of getting these gastrointestinal symptoms from both both of these mechanisms. And then what studies have shown is that the, the consequence of this gut dysbiosis in people with IBS is things like more gas production when they consume FODMAPs. So um, there's been these, these studies. There was um, a really interesting one done in 2010 that uh, fed people with IBS and as well as healthy controls, uh, FODMAPs, and then did um, hydrogen breath testing um, and showed that like everyone had an increase in hydrogen when they consumed FODMAPs, including right the healthy controls, because those are highly fermentable substrate for our gut bacteria and hydrogen is one of the metabolic byproducts. But the people with IBS, had way higher levels of hydrogen in their breath than the healthy controls. Um, and so you can see that um, the, the gas production as a result of bacterial metabolism and a lack of bacterial crossfeeding because of gut dysbiosis is likely driving the symptoms of IBS. That is fascinating. And while I get it, it's also like a little bit of a 
mind explosion to measure things in people's breath. I mean, I, I get it. It's coming mm-hmm. out all ends, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've done I've done hydrogen and methane um, breath tests uh, for for SIBO before, um, and it's it's like you literally like blow into a test tube. It's it's pretty cool. It's it's a pretty cool test. There's um at home versions, um, or you can do it in a in a doctor's office. Um, but yeah, because what it's not just about how much is there. They can tell where you have the the gut dysbiosis based on how long after your challenge hydrogen and or methane go up, which is really fascinating too. So the the longer it is, basically the farther down your digestive tract it is. So it's a uh, yeah, it's enough to make it's enough to make a, a gal nerd out. That's all I can say. <laughs> it also is um, reminds me of the. Uh, what do they call it? The pass-through test where you like eat sesame seeds or you eat something and mm-hmm. then you see how long it takes to go through. Um, kind of reminds me of that in terms of check checking on things and figuring out the timing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all, uh, all of these things provide important data points as far as I'm concerned. Um, okay, but let's move on to the, 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 where, FODMAPs are a double-edged sword when it comes to IBS. So um, there's a huge number of studies showing that people with IBS, when they follow low FODMAP diets, have alleviation of symptoms, at least like 75-ish percent of, of people. And these are done and now, right, there's enough studies that there's meta-analyses. So about 75% of people with IBS have full symptom resolution when they follow a low FODMAP diet. Now, some of those people may be have food sensitivities and they're eliminating more foods than necessary and others may have gut dysbiosis that means that when they consume FODMAPs they have this increase in symptoms because they don't have the right bacteria to help process the metabolic byproducts. But here are some of the foods that people would be eliminating. Um, So high FODMAP vegetables like asparagus and Brussels sprouts and cauliflower and cabbage and artichokes and garlic and onions and leeks and mushrooms, um, high FODMAP fruits like apples and apricots and cherries and figs and mangoes, and nectar, pretty much all of the stone fruits, um, pears, plums, watermelon, and um, high FODMAP legumes, um, which is basically like all of the all of the beans, uh, lentils, even split peas. And um, for our listeners who have read my Gut Health Guidebook and Gut Health Cookbook, um, where there's like a deep dive into all of these foods and how they impact the gut microbiome, uh, their, their little radars are already up because they're saying like, oh, those are all gut microbiome superfoods. Those are all foods that are super important for feeding a healthy and diverse gut microbiome. Um, and so it, it really is, right? We're cutting out some of the most important prebiotic foods for our gut bacteria and, uh, you know, as we see this in the studies that have looked at, um, looked at the types of fiber that are in these foods like fructans and show that when we consume these types of fibers, they significantly increase the growth of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. So we've got this, this 
uh, conflict where the lack of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus is making it hard to process um, the fiber in these foods, but it's the fiber in these foods that feed the bifidobacterium and the lactobacillus. And the problem with this is that a low FODMAP diet, while effective for symptom management for IBS, means that the there's not enough fiber to support these really important probiotic species, which actually then perpetuates gut dysbiosis. So studies have shown that low FODMAP diets, even in healthy individuals, but also in IBS, causes dysbiosis. The biggest change we see is a dramatic reduction in bifidobacterium, but also lactobacillus, uh, fecalibacterium pratsnitsi, acromantia, mu uh, mucinophila, rosburia, um, and beneficial clostridium and ruminococcus, right? So all of the bacteria that love to eat FODMAPs that we also know are some of the most important probiotic species for a healthy gut. Um, and this has been shown, again, right, in people with IBS and healthy people that, that not consuming these fiber types has a really bad <laughs> impact on the gut microbiome. Um, and this has been shown, like, over and over again, studies... Um, in people with IBS, again, show the low FODMAP diet reduces bifidobacterium, healthy controls reduces bifidobacterium. It's been shown in IBD um, that, again, you see this, like it helps symptoms, but it drives gut dysbiosis. And this is really interesting to put into the context of, there's also been a bunch of studies looking at high FODMAP and prebiotic supplementation diets for IBS. And still enough of these types of studies for reviews and meta-analyses. So this is really interesting because studies have shown that um, when you increase FODMAPs, you increase bifidobacterium, and that's actually associated with uh, a reduction in IBS symptoms. So when you have more bifidobacteria, again, that's a really sort of important keystone species for cross-feeding that can reduce IBS. Um, and there've been studies that have even gone into like, what are the best fiber types? So they've shown that um, you can divide fructans into inulin type fiber, which is the type of fiber that's really high in like coconut or chicory. Um, that fiber can increase symptoms, but still improve the gut microbiome. And the non-inulin type fructans, which is more what you're going to get from like cruciferous vegetables, doesn't increase symptoms, at least in a 2019 study that helped to, to look at all of this. Um, and then other types of prebiotics also helped improve IBS symptoms. And then all of the types of prebiotics that the study looked at increased bifidobacterium. So again, we've kind of got this, we've got this challenge that um, a low FODMAP diet may be effective for symptom management, but it's going to propel the problem um, and potentially even worsen it so that FODMAP intolerance will, will actually increase, right? So the amount of FODMAPs that you can consume to stay below symptom level will over time go down. Um, and so the, the, challenge here is, you know, what the, I mean, I think what this shows is that that's not the right, it's not the right strategy. Um, if, if, um, if symptom management was, was the only goal, 
um, it would be effective. But because we know that the gut microbiome is so intricately linked with our overall health, um, a symptom management strategy that harms the gut microbiome and potentially drives inflammation. We know with the gut-brain axis, um, gut dysbiosis can increase things like uh, depression and anxiety. Um, a lot of, uh, basically all chronic illnesses are linked to gut dysbiosis in some way. And if you're following a diet that fails to feed the most important probiotic species, that's going to increase disease risk over time. So it, it really represents a fundamental flaw in a low FODMAP strategy. I guess it does make sense to me that we're trying to reduce system, uh, reduce symptoms, which is why we would um, pause on these things, right? Anything I've ever read has always been like the FODMAP approach is, is part time, is like a a short-term thing. It's not intended to be a permanent diet. Um, and so someone would remove these things and see an immediate reduction in symptoms. I guess the question that I have is, um, what what are they doing during that time period to feed the good bacteria is really what makes a difference, mm -hmm. right? And like, some if all we're doing is removing all these foods that also have benefits to us, we're not actually helping our bodies. We have to focus on building back up the good bacteria in other ways. And most people are not really focused on that. I mean, listen, I'm including myself in this bucket, although I've never done <laughs> a low FODMAP thing. I think we all have the best of intentions. Like, okay, I'm going to, you know, do this, this, and this, and this, and really our society, our diet culture in general, the way that our minds work is it's easier to focus on removing than it is on adding, which is yeah. something that we often talk about, right? So it's like we focus on the portion of, okay, I've removed all these things and then things are going to go great. But if the other side of that coin isn't also being focused on, which is where something like a probiotic comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. Like if those kinds of things aren't being focused on, then you really can have almost like this boomerang effect, like a, a negative hit to your gut instead of um, the benefits that you're seeking. And so if, if we're feeling like this might be more harm than good to those people who are struggling with something like SIBO or whatever it might be that they're trying to heal with, a low FODMAP diet, where do we think the next steps are? Do we think, is there science to support maybe focusing on that good side, less about the takeaway and more about what to add and more about that kind of stuff that we can see success? Yeah, I think the, the collection of studies where they've done fiber supplementation and they've done high FODMAP diets or they've done uh, high dose prebiotic uh, or sort of probiotic supplementation and shown resolution of symptoms, I think those make a really strong case for focusing on supporting a healthy and diverse gut microbiome. Um, and whether that includes a short-term, say less than two weeks, low FODMAP approach to get sort of symptoms um, managed, whether or not that's necessary will depend on the individual and again, on the advice of your healthcare provider who knows your situation and we don't and can provide you with individualized advice and we can't give you any advice. Um, but I think that, um, I think that there's enough science to show that the, the, the top line 
focus needs to be on restoring a healthy gut. And I think, you know, we've talked about, we've talked about gut health now uh, approximately a million times on the show. And I do want to plug my, my gut health eBooks, the gut health guidebook and the gut health cookbook, because they really do dive into the science behind how compounds in foods interact with the gut microbiome in uh, crazy scientific detail. It's like a, they're super rigorous resources um, and uh, and definitely my best resources for really understanding the in and out of how not just diet, but lifestyle interact with the gut. Um, but the, the path forward that makes the most sense to me would be to um, you know, keep FODMAP consumption low enough that that symptoms are tolerable, right? We don't we don't need to be sort of muscling through uh, those symptoms uh, as part of our our pathway to healing. That sounds miserable. And the most important FODMAP, uh, high FODMAP foods to avoid in that, uh, you know, keeping things below symptoms are actually prebiotic enhanced foods, right? So often, inulin is uh, the fiber that is added to uh, foods, right? They're, they're sometimes called uh, functional foods or, you know, prebiotic enhanced foods, right? So it's always better to get fiber from whole food sources. And that's because even small differences in fiber structure can make a big difference in terms of which bacteria prefer that fiber. And where we get fiber diversity is from fruits, vegetables, mushrooms, nuts, and seeds. Um, and we've talked about this show on the show, uh, approximately a bajillion times. I actually pulled some episode numbers. So for the importance of veggies, fruits, and mushrooms, uh, we talked about this in episode 281, 286, 304, 307, 335, 346, 373, 392, 424, and 435. We talked about nuts and seeds in episodes 413 and 452. Um, we talked about extra virgin olive oil um, and how that's so helpful for the gut microbiome in 326 and 414. And then the fats um, and protein actually in fish and shellfish are also super important for the gut microbiome. We talked about those in episodes 366, 415, and 451. So we have tons of resources in in our uh, podcast for understanding how those foods can benefit the gut and benefit our health in general, as well as lots of practical tips discussed throughout those, those episodes. So focusing on those foods that are super important for the gut microbiome, right? So whole vegetables, fruit, mushrooms, nuts, seeds, uh, omega-3 fats from fish, as well as a high quality extra virgin olive oil as the go-to fats, but keeping fat intake moderate. Um, and then the best proteins for the gut microbiome, again, are fish and shellfish. Um, those are the top line, sort of most important things to focus on for supporting a healthy gut microbiome, um, along with lifestyle. So our, our gut bacteria are also sensitive to our hormone environment, which is influenced by how much sleep we're getting, how active we are, and how well we're managing stress. And then the next super important path <laughs> through um, IBS and, and, and through uh, gut dysbiosis is uh, exposure to important bacteria. And a bacillus-based probiotic like Just Thrive here becomes super important. So not all bacillus, there's about 200 species of bacillus, not all of them 
are beneficial. So it's really important to take a probiotic where it only includes species that have been really well studied. And that's what Just Thrive does. Um, not only have each individual species been studied, but Just Thrive has also done clinical trials with their um, combination showing that it helps to uh, reduce endotoxemia, right? It helps to improve, that means improving gut barrier health. Um, and we know that those species create a gut environment that's conducive to the growth of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. So ideally you would combine a bacillus-based probiotic, the one that we endorse is Just Thrive, and you would combine that with fermented foods like sauerkraut, kombucha, kefir, um, because those are, are going to provide exposure to, especially if they're wild ferments, a diverse uh, number of species of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, but the bacillus is what makes the environment where they want to hang out in your gut and they don't just pass through. And the species in Just Thrive are potentially beneficial for IBS symptoms above and beyond that. So bacillus coagulans um, actually helps to aid digestion. It produces uh, digestive enzymes, including alpha amylase, and has been shown to improve gastrointestinal symptoms, including abdominal pain, bloating, flatus, and diarrhea. Bacillus subtilis has been shown to uh, drive the restoration of microbial diversity after an infection and helping to stabilize the gut microbiome. The presence of bacillus subtilis dramatically increases the growth of lactobacillus species, so super important. Bacillus clausi actually is, um, so bacillus species in general produce all of these like almost 800 different selective antimicrobials that can selectively kill certain pathogens. So bacillus clausi is one of the best like pathogen killers. It kills Staph aureus, uh, Clostridium difficile, um, just a pathogenic. I just envisioned it like an assassin, like just the yeah. way that you were describing. Just goes through. <laughs> just, it's like a ninja. It is. Just, just just goes around the gut and goes, you, bad. And then then it just kills it with its selective antimicrobials. Um, but it's <laughs> oh actually. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's not. It's great. Um, it's one of the most important for, um, it's been shown to have some therapeutic potential for uh, SIBO, for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, um, which is one of the forms of gut dysbiosis that can be driving IBS. And then uh, Bacillus indicus, which is the other species in Just Thrive, um, is a per particularly effective at producing uh, highly bioavailable antioxidant carotenoids that are essential for immune function. So it produces like 11 different carotenoids right in the gut where they're most easily absorbed. So these four species are all, right? There's so much synergy between them and they're, they're all super beneficial for helping to restore a healthy gut as well as in the specific case of IBS because they can help uh, aid digestion. They've actually got some, some additional utility in um, in helping to, to alleviate symptoms. I'm, I'm still back at the like vision of the assassin, like you had a ninja, the, but in my mind it was like, like a more like a, assassin. like a, like a spy, like wearing the, wearing the suit. Yes. Like a woman with a red cape. I don't know why that seems like mm. it would be counterproductive to being I, an assassin. I feel like a red cape. Part. Yeah. I feel like the red cape would be a giveaway. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so um, I love that I wanted, I'd just also call out that this information that we're providing is scientific data. And while we called back to all of these shows that we've talked about before in terms of supporting gut health, if you know, you listened way back when to our original FODMAP show, you know, one of the things that I love that we're revisiting science and um, giving updates is um, something that I've heard multiple listeners tell us recently, which is that they appreciate that we can be here and make updates. And, you know, it is what it is, right? It's not a judgment on what we knew at the time or anything like that. Like, I've been saying, Facts are facts. They don't have opinions. Like the, the science mm-hmm. is what it is, no matter how it might make us feel. And if you did a low FODMAP diet before, or you're thinking about it, or you know someone who is, this is not a judgment on anything like that. What we're trying to do is help us take the next steps forward to being our best and healthiest selves. And I happen to think that it's wonderful that we're focusing more on what we can add to our diets versus this propensity that culturally and society wise we have to remove and take away. And so it's, it's to me very refreshing to hear that the science is supporting this idea, right? It's, it's not about restriction. It's not about punishment. It's not about like all these kinds of things. And yes, we are saying that, you know, gluten and dairy and soy are, um, problematic. And unfortunately, that is what it is. And we've talked about how those foods have been um, modernized and, you know, uh, abundant in diet to cause problems. Um, and unfortunately, that is what it is. We can't change the genetic makeup of those foods. But what we can do is focus on the foods that we know are really healthy and beneficial for our gut bacteria, which in turn feeds so much of the rest of us. So I know, Sarah, you plugged your gut health book. You know, one of the things that I want to call out about that is that you might say, well, why is gut microbiome so important? Like we focus on this so much. You know, there's so many other aspects of our health that we also need to focus on. Yes, this is the building block of all those other things. I think I just kind of want to like emphasize that if you're, if you're new here and you're kind of like, well, I don't understand why this is the focus. Well, first of all, FODMAPs, Um, approach is coming from a place of gut dysbiosis in and of itself. So we obviously want to support that healthy environment as much as we can. But beyond that, the, the basic building blocks of so much of what science is learning is that our little friends in our gut are, um, leading so much of the charge on our overall health. It impacts, Mm -hmm. you know, our hormones, it impacts, um, like I said earlier, transmitters. Yes. How leaky the blood-brain barrier oh is. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's it's they they basically influence every cell in our body. I don't think there's I don't think there's a limit to their their reach uh, within our body because of all of the different biologically active molecules they make. Um, Stacy, you said something that made me feel like there's one more point to emphasize here, and that is. If you're listening to this show and you have been following a low FODMAP diet for a while for symptom management, um, and you're listening to this and you're going, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to shift my focus again, talk with your doctor. That's always really important. Um, but there's not a compelling reason to eat 
all the FODMAPs all at once. And so if you have been following a low FODMAP diet, or even if you um, combine a low FODMAP approach for a couple of weeks while focusing on these other things that are really important for, for gut health, um, I definitely recommend going slow with increasing uh, consumption of high FODMAP foods. So ideally, you would stay at a level where if you did have some gastrointestinal symptoms, they're like, you know, completely, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're not eroding quality of life, right? They're manageable. It's fine. It's not, it's not your favorite, but it's okay. Right. That that's kind of the level that you would want to stay below. And each time that you kind of sort of make this shift in diet, it takes two to three days at least, if not up to like six weeks for the, the gut microbiome to kind of restabilize. So you can think about a couple of days as being each step in terms of increasing FODMAP consumption. And maybe it's as slow as starting at a teaspoon of, you know, cabbage, right? Um, or, or onion. And, and that might be where you are to stay below symptoms. And then maybe you increase a teaspoon at a time. Maybe your gut is adjusting really well. Symptoms are not so bad and you can, uh, increase a little bit more aggressively. Maybe you increase by like a quarter cup every few days, um, uh, throughout the day, right? Total, total, total dose of high FODMAP foods throughout the day. Um, but it's, you know, it's important to sort of recognize that, some of the species that are most important for crossfeeding and for our tolerance to FODMAPs are kind of slow growers, right? So there's some of there's some of the more um, sensitive species in our guts, um, and so giving giving some a, a chance for them to to grow and divide before upping the stimulus can be can be really really helpful um, in terms of you know, making this sustainable and not, right, there's not a good reason to go from low FODMAP to all the FODMAP. So gradual, gradual change, baby steps is, is definitely, definitely helpful. I'm glad you mentioned that. And I, it's also the same with so many other things that we're doing with our bodies, right? Like, mm -hmm. I've heard the same thing about if you're super low carb, and then you want to start adding back, if you jump too quickly, it kind of can overwhelm and um, not not be as productive as if we worked up towards, you know, adding those things. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, give our, our guts a chance to acclimate. You know, if we think of them as yes. like having their own little party and then you just throw in all this stuff to the party, they'll get knocked down and get overwhelmed. But then if you're like, and here's this one thing, oh, yay, let's party with it. And then here's another thing. And now my analogy has become awkward. So we're going to move on. I believe on. we need like a Chumba Wumba song right here. <laughs> and maximum embarrassment and nerding out on the show. Let me just remind people that um, if you want to try, just thrive. Um, we want to thank them, first of all, for sponsoring the show. And um, I cannot tell you enough how much I genuinely um, love this probiotic. And I think anybody who is having any sort of digestive issues, but also, as you've heard, even if you're not having digestive issues, your little gut friends affect so much about overall health and supporting them 
in a way where we no longer as modern human beings have that um, soil based probiotic effect to um, the foods that we eat are, you know, so clean and prepared and we're not digging them up ourselves and all of those kinds of probiotics that we would naturally be getting um, before modern times are no longer available to us. So this is why this supplement in particular is one that um, we personally recommend. And um, while we're not medical professionals, any medical professional I've ever talked to has been uh, wholeheartedly endorsing a probiotic. So definitely, you know, talk to your doctor to see how it would fit in with everything that you're working on. But um, I, I just, I love that also Just Thrive offers this 15% off code with the whole view. You can go to justthrivehealth.com slash the whole view to get that code. And if you set up a subscription, I've mentioned this before, but let me just remind you, if you set up a subscription, which you can end at any time, there's no penalty for that, um, it gives you an additional discount. So it's almost like buy two, get one free if you combined mm-hmm. the code with the subscription. And a lot of brands won't let you combine a code with the subscription discount and Just Thrive does. So definitely take advantage of that. I totally want to second my appreciation for Just Thrive. I've lost track of how many years I have been taking Just Thrive probiotic. I'm generally terrible at keeping track of how many years I've been doing something unless I have like my kid was this old when. Uh, It's definitely been a long time because um, we started – Adele, my 14-year-old, on Just Thrive when she started getting some acne, and it became really, really helpful for um, for improving her skin. And she's like already on the other side of of like her her acne period of time. So it's that's that's how long it's been. What's that like five years, six years? It's been a long time. Um, but uh, I wholeheartedly endorse and love and personally use Just Thrive. And I am so grateful to them for sponsoring the show. And I'm so grateful to our listeners for tuning in. Oh, and I also want to mention that I perhaps threw Sarah under the bus and um, offered to answer more of your COVID vaccine questions in our Patreon. (laughs) And we did get Uh we did get many from you. Sarah might be a little bit irritated with me, Um, but if you're not yet on our Patreon, which means um, it's just like a a follow-up, it's a different platform that you go to, and you get about 20 to 30 minutes of bonus content every week. We cover what we really thought about the show, but then we also cover really good, valuable information sometimes um, over there that we forget when we're doing the show and that kind of stuff. So if you want to check that out, we will be answering those questions in the Patreon following this show and probably future ones to catch up on these questions. So I just want to remind you, if you're not yet over there, you might want to give it a try. I think it's less than $5 for a month of shows, which is for 20 to 30 minute shows. Um, And you don't, you don't have to do that, obviously, but we appreciate your support if you do. And um, I'm grateful to have that platform to address ongoing questions as, as things arrive um, so that we can talk about other topics like this one. So thank you again for listening. And um, hopefully we'll be chatting with you over on Patreon soon. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. 
And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode.